0: Harshas Shemini. Unbridled love kills, but so does overbearing discipline. Ahava and Yira. Love and discipline. Two indispensable mitos. One without the other causes disaster. We all appreciate. That passion, love, is the driver of life, the driver of progress. But at the same time, discipline, a sense of boundaries, a sense of tethering oneself to reality and to the other in a relationship is the indispensable framework for passion to accomplish. This theme, the balance between Av and Yira will emerge pervasively in developing our parsha. So let's dig in. The tragedy in our parsha, the tragedy of miscelebration at the time of the dedication of the Mishkan, Vayichi Bayom Hashmini, Nadav and perish when they display Ahava without yirah they worship in an unwarranted way, motivated by deep passions. Lahosef Ahava al-Ava, says the Madrash, they were so inspired, they sought to add love to love. But they did not respect the scruples of Halacha. Now what exactly did they do? Various opinions in Midrashim interpret their sin differently. There are tens of opinions raging from they worshipped under the influence, which one is not allowed to do, a Cohen is not allowed to do, or they entered the Kodesh Kadashim, the Holy of Holies, they came too close, which entered a realm which only on Yom Kippur and only the koin gadol may enter, to a suggestion that they worshipped without all of the appropriate big day kahuna, priestly garb, just walking right in. Many, many suggestions, but none of these are in the shel mikra, are in the simple reading of the Pasuk. So to appreciate Nadav and Aviyu's struggle properly, we need to develop the psuto, the simple meaning of the Pasuk, and then see how all of these well-known Midrashim are augmenting the simple read. The Torah tells us quite clearly, they sacrificed Esh Zara, Asher lo foreign incense, which they were not commanded to bring. The sin is that incense may not be brought voluntarily. Incense may only be brought when Hashem said to do it. And that is the sin. Now this understanding that incense may only be brought when one is commanded to is well-based. There is an explicit pussock which says this. Back in Parashas Tetzaveh, the Torah says, alav zara. Do not sacrifice on the incense altar, on the Mizbeach Ketores, foreign Ketores, i.e. K- k- incense, which one was not commanded to sacrifice. And you immediately notice the textual parallelism to our story, just as Nadav and Aviyu's sacrifice of incense is called Eish Zara Suf foreign fire? Well, in the prohibition back in Parshas Tetzava, to sacrifice foreign ketorahs, to sacrifice ketorahs spontaneously without a command. It uses that same term, zara, ketorah zara. So we get it. We understand what they did wrong on a ritualistic level and how that dovetails with earlier verses. But the question is, is that really it? They violated a halacha. They sacrificed incense when they weren't commanded to do so. Is that really of fatal proportions and worth undermining the entire simchan celebration of the dedication of the mishkan? And the truth is, we have to ask an even deeper question, which is a, of much greater conceptual and neshama import. And that is, why is it that Hashem prohibits the sacrificing of incense spontaneously? Ketores nedava. Does Judaism not welcome Nidava? Does Judaism not welcome self-expression, personal initiative, and giving one's own voice in religious experience? We have Nidava all the time. Other karbanos with the exception of incense, one is most certainly allowed and encouraged to bring a behemoth as an offering on their own volition. And, and in mitzvah observance as well, spontaneity is welcomed. Why no spontaneity when it comes to the Torah? And why is that sin of such grave implications that not of were struck down for it? Now, what does this do for me? What does this tell me about how Hashem wants me to serve him? So it's important to understand that the mezbeach ketores, the incense altar, is not like the the mezbeach hachitzom, the external altar upon which animal sacrifices are offered. The mezbeach ketores, the incense altar, is lifnin, is within the mishkan. It is not outside in the courtyard. Meaning when one sacrifices incense, they are in the king's palace. They are standing right in front of Hashem. They are no longer in the mortal domain of the chatzar, of the outside curtain, courtyard of the Mishkan. They are now Omed Lefnei And when you're standing in the presence of the king, ay, ay, sir, doing what one's told is indispensable. Because to do otherwise, in the king's presence, to express oneself one's own way is to snub the king. So of course Judaism welcomes spontaneity, and other of other Karbanas welcomes it. The point here is, one always needs to be mindful of where they are. And when one is in the king's chamber, the protocol changes. In life, we can, we may not, we cannot live mindless of environment and circumstances and take what I want to be my reality, my truth, and just try to create it, ignoring the place I'm in those who are around me. One must connect, relate, integrate themselves, with the environment which is around them. And this could not be more important than in a relationship. In a relationship, it is not a pursuit of self, but a pursuit of connection to the other. In Avotas Hashem, when I'm trying to connect to Hashem, there's a mindfulness of how does Hashem want to be related here? Is this the courtyard? Is this a place? where I am supposed to express myself, or am am I in his palace, in his throne room, as it were, inside the Mishkan, not the Holy of Holies, but inside the Mishkan, when reverence is called for. This is the basic message, as I understand it. Unbridled love here means, unbridled love which kills, quite literally kills Nadab Avihu. It is the lack of, relating to the other, in this case Hashem in the relationship. It's living one's own reality rather than integrating oneself with environment, circumstance, and the other. In this case, HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the relationship and how he wants to be related to in this given moment, in this given place. One can articulate in a similar vein. This is the error of not recognizing boundaries in relationship. All relationships, man and woman, friends, interacting with a community, with a neighborhood, and ultimately interacting with Hashem, demand the recognition of healthy boundaries of the other. There's another party here. And how do they want to be related to? How does Hashem want to be related to? And sometimes drawing back and recognizing boundaries is what is creating the healthy relationship. From this perspective, we understand yet another description of Nadav and Avihu's error, which appears later in Parshus Achremos, when the Torah is warning Aaron. Generally, not to enter the Kodesh Hakadosh,im generally not to enter the Holy of Holies. And it says, Hashem al Hashem spoke to Aaron in this warning after his sons had died. After Natan sons had died, Bikar Hashem when they drew too close. Hashem here enjoins Aaron, do not draw too close, do not enter the Holy of Holies when it's not Yom Kippur. So he's clearly drawing an analogy between Nadav and Aviv's mistake when they, Bikar came too close and what Aaron not, ought not do in coming too close and entering the Holy of Holies. Now this posak can lead someone to a literalist interpretation and say, must be Nadav and entered the Holy of Holies. That's why Hashem is telling Aaron, unlike them, don't enter the Holy of Holies. And there are, in fact, Midrashic opinions, as we mentioned before, that understand that. Nadav and entered the Holy of Holies. However, the majority of Midrashic opinions portray Nadav and Aviu's mistake in other ways. Do not talk about the Holy of Holies. So, Clearly, we're gonna to have to explain that even if Natavanaviu did not per se enter the Holy of Holies, the issue is the very the very same: drawing too close. Bikarvasam Lifnay Hashem. It's the drawing too close, it's the not recognizing of boundaries, whether it's marching into the space of the other when they don't want to be invaded. Whether it's spatially, whether it's the will and the wishes of the other, in this case, HaKadosh Baruch it's really respect. It's really, define, it's really the harmonizing respect towards the other, relation, partner, environment, along with passion. B'kar Hashem, they drew too close. On the simplest level, they drew too close when they sacrificed incense in a realm which Hashem, the other party, did not want. And you will see this term, drawing too close, not respecting boundaries of the other, echoing throughout the narrative. The sister terminology appears in our parsha when Moshe comforts Aaron after Nadav and Avihu dies and he says, Bikro You know, God says, I become sanctified when those closest to me die. Nadav and Avihu were those closest to Hashem. I would suggest beyond the simplistic read that he's comforting Aaron, though they sinned, they're saints. He is harping on that word Bikar some, when they drew near, also to artic- articulate their mistake. It was a mistake of drawing too near, as we saw in the Ahrema's passage, not respecting boundaries, which ultimately is not respecting the other. So it really doesn't matter per se what Nadav and did. It is the theme of yira, respect along with Ava, and we can transport that idea to our own lives and our own relationships, both Binadam L'Chavira and Binadam Makkam, and in, in a myriad of different senses, how we comport ourselves how we comport ourselves with our spouses, how we comport ourselves with Hashem. Am I a good listener? Am I talking always or am I listening? Is Am I pursuing self in this relationship or am I pursuing the relationship? I took to heart once when I heard a presenter say, Hashem gave us two ears and one mouth that should say something about their proportion. And I thought that was a very sharp statement. That... that, that bears remembering. So we will see Nadev and Avihu's issue transported into other contexts, which are not per se the ritual mistake which they committed, but the lesson is the same. For example, immediately following the Nadev and Avihu debacle in our parsha, the Torah enjoins us that Kohana may not drink under the influence. <laughs> Hashem doesn't want the Kohanim worshipping under the influence of alcohol. For all the place for alcohol and revelry in Judaism, we just celebrated the holiday of Purim. In the Avodah, Hashem wants clear, calm, collect minds. Clearly, there's an analogy being drawn here as Hazelnut, between Nugav and Aviyah's mistake and worshipping under the influence. Now again, some midrashim take this of, juxtapositioning of verses, Nadav and and the prohibition against worshiping under the influence, to say it's the same mistake. And Nadav and Avi actually did worship under the influence. However, not all midrashim accept that. And as we said before, the simple shot of the psukkim do not speak about Nadav and Avi drinking alcohol. So I would therefore suggest, even without positing that Nadav and Avi drink alcohol, the issue is the same. It's a general issue of discipline, curbing unbridled expression of self in relationship to Hashem and relationship to the other one. Whether it's restraining oneself in the sacrifice of incense when you're lifnei hamelach in the Holy of Holies, when you when you ought to be in Sir mode, or whether it is. Worshiping without the stimuli lint of wine for total self expression. The issue is the same respect along with unbridled love. There, again, there are other midrashic portraits of what Nadav and Aviv's mistake was, and they all point to this underlying issue. I'll develop one additional possibility, aside from the possibilities of them maybe entering the Holy of Holies or maybe worshipping under the influence, but all grounded in the simple reading of the Pasek that they sacrificed incense spontaneously. There's another opinion which says they worshipped without wearing the Bidde kahuna. In particular, they weren't wearing the me'il. They weren't wearing that tunic called the me'il. Now, now, what is the significance of that? Aside from a ritualistic indiscretion, how does it relate to the pshat of the of Nafib story, which is ava without yira, unbridled love without respect? Well, this actually touches on a very contemporary subject. We live in an age when formality is no longer appreciated. The letting it all hang out thing, I want to just do it my way, which I would dare say I see on the street and even in, in halls and in, at events, sometimes comes with coming minimally dressed or certainly not respectfully dressed. I mean, I've been in the courtroom, called for jury duty, and I see people showing up for jury duty, uh, you know, I won't fill in the blanks. Right? And this is this is this is in uh, this is in court. Um, but in Yiddish in religion as well, the respect for pomp, dignity, formality, a no Noram, and you think of if you want to take this to an extreme, think of an old Yakisha show and all and all of the covet of that sort of service. Well, it doesn't, doesn't seem to talk to many people today. People want the take me as I am, let it all hang out sort of thing. That just seems to be, and this is not a recent phenomenon, this is decades, this seems to be just the Zeitgeist today. So to enter the Mishkan and worship without the formal garb, I would see in a similar sense. It is the, I want religious self-expression myself, my way, not being stunted by the protocol, in this case the protocol of what Hashem, the other party wants. I don't. It's the lack of appreciation for reverence, respect, ultimately towards the other. In this case, Hashem, and that how that has to be fused with the lay, with the passion. And to develop this one step further, why does the Medrash pick on the Me'il and say they specifically weren't wearing the Me'il tunic? What is what is significant about the Me'il? the me'il was the garment which had bells on the bottom. When the Kohen gadol would walk, the bells in the bottom of the me'il would ring. Now, what was the role of those bells? So many of you shown him say it was for the Kohen to, so to speak, announce his presence when he strides into the Mishkan. Just like a doorbell today or a knocker, you announce your presence. And actually, the Gemara says that a person should announce their presence even when they walk into their own home. It's a concept of appreciating. There's another party here. It's not just about me and striding and going wherever I want. I'm treading into the space of shared with another here. So let me announce myself. Let me ask permission or even not permission. Let me at least make them aware so I am not treading on a private space. Well, the Kohen needs to do this. The Kohen, will certainly, when he enters the Mishkan, the bells need to ring, the Me'il. Nodav and avi, we're not wearing those announcer bells. What that symbolizes is it's the treading of the sacred space of the other, in this case, Hashem. Just on one's own accord. Well, I want to enter. I want that religious experience. I want that self-expression without the this is the space of another, certainly the shared space, and I must comport myself that way, announce my presence with the dangling bells ringing on the bottom of the mill. So, all in all, all of these components of the Nadavanaviyu story, Midrashic interpretations, Pshat tinkerings, come together in a cohesive picture. Aven Yira the indispensable balance between the two. And when dealing with tzaddikim such as Nadav and Avihu, we have to appreciate how even an error, this is an error of great, great people, and the more we think about it, the more we can sympathize with them, empathize with them. We can appreciate how very passionate people struggle with this and the more passionate you are, think in your own life, a very passionate people who find it more difficult to learn the restraint and respect thing. Think about being on, on, a, being on a Machaver level and a person who wants to express himself lovingly towards the other and the other party thinks they are being invasive and, tri- and the like. And there needs to be an understanding on both sides. This is a good, passionate person who needs to learn boundaries. That is not the vanavihu. Unfortunately, when you're the Kohen, worshipping in the Mishkan, the stakes are high, and that you're not always given second chances. But that is not the vanavihu. They are super passionate. They are super spontaneous. They have a spunk in their avaytas Hashem. And I see this in their names. Names are significant in Tyro. When the, when the Torah highlights someone's name, that means the phonetic or the etymological ring to their name it's supposed to evoke something in my mind. Well, Nadav is from the word Nidava, spontaneity or volunteerism. It's right there in his name, Nadav. This was an individual who sought just to initiate, just to do on his own accord. He was driven. And likewise, Avihu, what does the name Avihu mean? He is my father. I would suggest that he is with a capital H, God is my father. Avihu did not focus on the melech, the rigidity, the respect and the discipline towards a melech. He felt this comfort level and this accessibility, right? Walking in without the formal garb, as we said. Avihu, he's my father. Nadav and Avihu. This study of Nadav and Aviyu's names becomes even more powerful when we take a break for a moment and we think, do these names or one of these names echo of another name? Another name we are well familiar with in our learning of Chumash. Nadav. Well, think of the Nasi, the prince of the tribe of Yehuda, of Yamsa fame. Who was it who strode right into the Yamsaf when everyone else was cowering at the side? Nachshon ben Amin Nadav. Well, not only is there that word connection, but hold on a second. We know that Nachshon ben Amin Nadav is actually the uncle of Nadav and Avihu. Because the Torah told us earlier in Parshish Vaera. That Nadav and Avi, whose mother, whose name is Ali Shava, was Nachshon's sister. Well, this connection becomes uncanny now. The name Nadav seems to be a family name. And when you think about the behavior of Nachshon ben Ami nadav the positive behavior of Nachshon ben Ami nadav I think that will go a long way to appreciating the underlying midan trait of Nadav and Avi as well. When Nachshon ben Aminadav strode right into the Amsaf, where did that come from? The gumption, the courage to walk right into the churning waves? How does he do this? This is because he is a super passionate, in his case, Balamuna, Muna, who has faith, and I'm going to do this and I am not going to be restrained. He must have been a flame of fire, Nachshon Ben-Ami Natav. Spontaneity. Not cowering out the side. Sidelines. And that's generally a positive trait. And I suggest that's a familial trait, which his nephews, his sister Elishaava's sons, Natav and Avi, shared. But as with every trait, it can be taken out of balance. The spontaneity without the balance of Judgment is at a time to show restraint, a time to show boundaries. You have the error of Nadav and Aviv. So that's a powerful, on many levels, a powerful connection we're studying between Nadav and Aviv and their uncle, more than a word game of Nadav, Ami Nadav, mean but a conceptual comparison, which kind of brings the people in the story to light. And re- really... Certainly gives me an ability to really empathize with great people in their error and how this is this is a fundamental struggle of Amida, which is so much them. Which perhaps some of us who are oriented on the side of passion and struggle with the boundaries thing, this gives us a figures in the Chumash to look to and to, to learn from. Because we learn from the great figures in our Chumash failure as much as in success. Understanding the personal side to Nadev and you'll appreciate how there are other stories in their past, other mistakes they made, which followed this same model. I will cite one. You recall back in Parshas Mish- Mishpatim, at the time of Matan Torah, the Torah describes Nadav and Avihu and the Seventy Elders. Vayohli vayishtu Vayaksu They looked at the divine while they were eating. Various interpretations are given to that story. It's an enigmatic passage. Rashi Uncles, interpreted each their own way. But on a Pshat level, looking at the divine while you were eating, It's a certain sense of intimacy, closeness. I am ready to engage with Hashem amidst eating. But it's a lack of reverence, restraint. So tragically, unbridled love kills. But you know, every tragedy in Torah, tragedies in Torah are not like some Greek tragedies that ultimately leave us in mourning. This is Torah. This is a Torah from an elevated Hashem. Even tragedies in Torah leave us in an elevating place. I would like to suggest that the death of Nadav and Aviv inspires the people. The people learn to balance boundaries with passion. Boundaries, respect the needs of the other with passion. I would go further to suggest that this message, the affirming the needs for boundaries, is as important as the divine revelation on that day when the Mishkan was inaugurated. As important as it was for them to see Hashem Shechina in the Mishkan on that day, it was as important for them to see Yes, I am here. I Hashem, am here with you. We have an intimate relationship. But respect me. This understanding, the Shekhinah with its Ava on one hand, and the message of Nadav and Aviv's death on the same day on the other, were really one positive message of balance, is borne out, I suggest when we study a Pesach cited by Rashi in our Parshim. Rashi says, Hashem had in a sense already predicted that there would be a tragedy like this when the, at this time. After all, Moshe tells Aaron, Hu asheromer Hashem Hashem kind of said this was going to happen. Well, where did Hashem say this was going to happen? Where was this tragedy predicted? So Rashi cites a Pesach back in Parshas Tatsata regarding the ritual of inaugurating the Mishkan. So immediately relevant to our story, which was the inauguration of the Mishkan, this very same story. It says... The No'arati of I will make my presence known to Bnei Yisrael. My Shechina will come down when the Mishkan is inaugurated. The Niktas I will become sanctified in my honor. So the sages read: Not only will Hashem become sanctified by showing His honor, but Hashem will be sanctified b'mechubadai by taking down His honored ones noda v'navivu when they don't act properly. Now, here we have a pasuk which in its simple, in its simple meaning is describing the power of Gilei the power of the divine revelation, and in the drash is describing the demise of Natav and Avil. It seems strange, this divergence of Pshad and Drash, that a verse... Which, in its pshat, is describing the positive revelation of the Shekhinah and Nikdash Bechvodi, I will be sanctified by making my presence known and accessible, is in the Jirash interpreted to mean I will be feared when I take out the saints. Natan but I'm suggesting that is exactly the point: the positive revelation of the Shekhinah and the message of Natan Avihu's death are really one of the same. They are both positive. You can't really. Behold the Shechina, if you don't take to heart the message of boundaries, which is learned in the story as well. One doesn't really have a relationship to their spouse, to their friends, to Hashem, if they don't respect them. Because if you are not respecting the other, it is really not a relationship to the other. It is really objectifying the other in a pursuit of self-fulfillment. And this is a positive message of boundaries, which is well learned by the people. And we see that it is well learned by the people, certainly by the Kohanim, in the aftermath of Nodav and Aviv's death. The Torah tells us, Vayidom Aaron, Aaron was silent. As much as Aaron wanted to mourn, he just lost his children. Aaron somehow found the wherewithal to suppress that. This is the inauguration of the Mishkan taking place. So don't sully Hashem's joy. Aaron somehow suppresses his mourning. And Aaron is therefore rewarded, Rashi explains, that the next mitzvah, the mitzvah prohibiting the worship under the influence of alcohol is given to him. As the verse says, Vayidabar Hashem al Moshe al-Aron leymar. Hashem told Aaron, not Moshe Aaron, Aaron was the emissary of the mitzvah, do not worship under the influence. Aaron was rewarded for his vayidomar for his suppressing his mourning with the mitzvah of don't worship under the influence. Now what is the connection here? What is the connection between Aaron holding back his mourning? And the prohibition, don't worship onto the influence. But the answer is, Aaron learned the message of his children's death very quickly, which is yira along with ava, discipline along with passion, which sometimes means suppressing one's own personal emotion. Because it's not about me. It's about the connection to the other, in this case Hashem, and Hashem didn't want mourning here. So the vayitom aron in the aftermath of the Natan of the death is so powerful. It is so powerful a one eighty tikkun and rectification. Aaron got it. He learned from his children. You need to suppress self sometimes for kavurashrina. So he was therefore awarded me that connected me that Hashem said Aaron, you got it. You understand that one needs to worship Hashem with a respect for boundaries, with respect and boundaries appreciating boundaries. As represented by the mitzvah, don't worship under the influence. Don't make yourself into a wild love creature under the influence when you worship. Love, yes, but not wild love. Respectful love. So now we can walk away from this tragedy of Nadav and Avihu, not distressed, but with a sense of solace, and hopefully even more than solace, a, posit- a positivity, a lesson was learned by the people, a lesson which continues to inform us, inform all of our relationship, relationship to spouse, relationship to others, relationship Tasha. respect along with love, because then it is truly love, not self-love, but love of the other, pursuing connection towards the other. And it's my feeling, this is a very big deal, a very big deal, you have many well-meaning people in relationship who struggle with this. They are seeking to be loving and the other party finds them invasive. And this is true, as, as we said in the contemporary area of Yiddishkeit as well. Those who want the free-flowing stuff, which has its redemptive quality, but have trouble balancing that with halacha and discipline and understanding that it's the discipline and the respect which tethers the love, which gives a context and framework and ultimately sustainability. I would like to take this year one final step, peel away one final layer of the onion. And that is with a study of our Haftorah. The Haftorah, the passage of the Haftorah, always selected from the Navi as a sister portion to the Parsha. Well, I would like to study how the Haftorah complements this message of the Parsha. The of and tragedy, but ultimately the need for love along with respect. And how the two Av and yir complement each other. The Haftorah begins by describing in the days of David Hamalach a celebration when the Aron, when the Ark, which previously had been hidden away, stowed away even after it came back from the Philistines and the plush the Jewish the situation was not safe, the Aron was not able to be placed for public Avodah. Well, in the days of David Hamel, the Aaron has been brought back here, being brought to Yushalayim, And it leaves the house of a fellow named Avi Nadav, and the Jewish people are dancing and celebrating. But then tragedy strikes. The Aaron is on a wagon, and it, the Aaron shifts from its place, and a fellow named Uzzah grabs onto the Aaron with his bare hands. Now, that's a no-no. You're not supposed to handle the ark with your bare hands. That's one of those don't try this at home things. And he is immediately struck down. You don't get second chances when you're dealing with the Arun tragically. So here we have once again, it is so remarkably similar to the Natavanavu tragedy in our parsha. We have dedication of the Mishkan in a sense, but tragedy and yet tragedy ensues, and it's a very similar sort of tragedy. It's a well-meaning Jew who feels a sense of ease towards the Shechimah, accessibility. I can touch the arm with my bare hands. Right? It's the same issue. It's the same appreciation of Yerot, balancing Ava. Not only is it conceptually similar, but there is a delicious Actual clue linking this story in our Haftorah back to the Parsha. Because notice that in this story of the Arun, it describes the Arun as in the house of Avinadov. The Arun here departed from the house of a fellow named Avinadov before this tragedy of the individual grabbing onto it with its bare hands. Now, Avinadov, that name. Is so evocative. It is so clearly a conjunction of the name of the two tragic heroes in our parsha, Avihu and Natav, Avinata. It's right there. Again, there are echoes in the text here, echoes in the Tanakh. The Tanakh is itself telling us: see it as the same story, see it as the same tragedy, and hence our Bali Yemasaor Chazal couple this parsha along, this haftorah along with the parsha. It's the same message. It's an enduring message throughout the periods of the Tanakh, but one which I'm going to suggest endures until this very day. The tragedy that unbridled love Nebuch kills. Passion without respect towards the other. But you know, my friends, once again we can find solace. Because there's a final clue in the Haft Torah. For all the talk tonight of the danger of unbridled love which kills Ava without Yira, our parsha would be incomplete if we did not touch on the danger of Yira without Ava. Do you know anyone who is so rigid, such a creature of discipline, that they stunt all passion and that kills no less Have you ever experienced those sort of school teachers who strike the fear in the hearts of the children? And think of various ethnicities. I would hope they are not Jewish ones in the way they speak of those school teachers. Well, that stuff kills too, Yirah without Ava. Well, here's the cuts. I want to trace now in the Haftorah how that balancing messages alluded to as well, for all the danger of unbridled love which kills, we are going to find that unbridled, overbearing discipline kills. Because you will hear on Shabbos in the Haftorah, after it describes the tragedy of the fellow who grabbed on to the Aaron with his bare hands and was struck down, it describes how David HaMelech continued to dance in front of the Aaron with all of his strength. with demonstrative expression, Makar bose. And the Torah continues that David is accosted by his wife, his wife Michal, and she says how I'm becoming. You are the king and you are doing this, you are dancing this way. You are appearing unbecoming even in front of the maidservants. David answers her so harshly, he doesn't miss a beat. David says, Michal, you're the daughter of Shul, the last king. Hashem, who stripped your father's king, kingship, made me king instead of your father. Your father. He wants me to worship this way. I'm going to be more respected for it. He wants dancing. He wants naked. He wants singing. Now, one cannot read this passage, and it's visceral, personal. Assault. You're criticizing me the way I'm dancing? Well, your father's kingdom was stripped. He was stripped of his kingdom. There seems to be something very, very personal here. That somehow David is saying, Michal, your criticism of me and the fact that I dance has something to do with the home you come from and your father and the unsustainability of that kingdom. Shal. Well, we know that unlike David, whose name is Miros Sral, the sweet singer of Israel, Dovid it is all song and dance. Shaul, on the other hand, what is his middah throughout Sefer Shmuel? Shaul is self-effacing. He's called Nachba ala You see that throughout the story in Shmuel. He's always timid. Didn't even want to be king. He hid away when they tried to anoint him king, the Navi says. And this is his undoing. He has trouble asserting himself because he's so timid. As we see in the story of Amalek, his battle with Amalek we read a few weeks ago. He was not able to reign in the people because he was so timid. Shmuel criticizes him. You're small in your own eyes when Rosh shift the Yisrael and you should be the king. I would posit the timidness of Shal has a lot to do with Yira on awry a person who is so restrained and so afraid, they are almost afraid of their own shadow and they can't be a leader and they can't assert themselves. Well, when Michal here is criticizing David's dancing and demanding more restraint, David is seeing her father's chickens coming home to roost, so to speak. That's the way your father behaved. Restraint, in an unhealthy way, which brought, in the case of Shal, timidness, which undermined his ability to be king. And David says, that's not what Hashem wants either. Hashem wants self. Hashem wants slave, And that's what's going to make me a leader, that I have a sense of self. Which includes knowing how to dance and know, knowing how to give voice to self. The kicker now is in the tragic final pusik of that passage in the haftarah where it says, Michal never bore a child. She died childless. Now, why is that significant to the storyline and significant to the debate between David and Shal, to dance or not to dance? Why is it significant that she had no children? Well, I would suggest this is the final incrimination, if I may be so harsh on Michal. Because Michal was so tough, so cold, in her father's image, Yira without Ava, she was not Zohar to raise a child. Because childbearing and rearing is all about Ahava. If you're cold and tough, you cannot cultivate life. Life, think of the word Lebedeckite, life is fundamentally Ahavadik. There can't be life without love. Love is the substance of life. A precious neshama child can only be cultivated in an environment which is fundamentally one of love. The discipline is... The means for that love, the inevitable, the indispensable discipline, is as we begin to tether Avah and make it sustainable. And children need to learn boundaries and so on. But it's not discipline for discipline's sake. Discipline's for discipline's sake. That's going to kill a child. Going to be afraid of the world and afraid of his own shadow. Much as Shaul is afraid of his own shadow. That, that, that's anathema to raising a child. Michal doesn't have a child. Toughness, Yirah without Ava, breeds lifelessness. Tragically, Michal cannot have a child. It is the model of David which must triumph. For all of the stress we learned from Nadav and Aviu and its sister studying the Haftorah, that unbridled love kills, overbearing discipline kills and is lifeless no less. Now we have an ever fuller treatment integrating the Parashah and Haftorah of this issue of Av and yira. Both are indispensable. One without the other is fatal. May we all find the ability in our own lives to be David HaMelech's, to be exciting people, people with stride in our step, people of love, who know how to respect boundaries and thereby pursue healthy relationships with each other, with our spouses, and ultimately with HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. Thank you very much.